Well, the Word of God is like a minefield. And I'm not talking about the mines that explode. I'm talking about the mines that you go in to search for treasure. Sixty-six books, I see them as 66 different mine shafts that you can go into and find treasure inexhaustible. I mean, treasure that would take a thousand lifetimes of digging to uncover. And so we transition from the book of Jonah to the mine of the gospel of Matthew to dig in it and find the treasure within. I want you to picture with me just this illustration of approaching the mine shaft of the gospel of Matthew. So you approach this opening, this entrance, you have your digging tools with you, and you're excited to uncover the treasure within, and you read above the the opening of the shaft, it says, the gospel of Matthew, and immediately you're excited. You're thrilled because gospel equals Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest subject in all of Scripture. He's the greatest subject to study the greatest treasure to uncover. When we look in the Gospel of Matthew, we get to sit under the teaching of Jesus. We get to watch Him work. Watch Him heal, serve, endure, suffer, and conquer. He is truly magnificent, truly wonderful, glorious, infinitely attractive, and He shines brighter than any stone that we can find in the Scriptures. And so we approach this Gospel of Matthew with great excitement and anticipation. And so excitedly, you have your digging tools with you. You take one step into this mine shaft. You're expecting to see wonderful, shiny jewels pop out all around you. And instead, what do you see? A list of names. At the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, you find a A genealogy, a long, boring, hard-to-pronounce genealogy. It's like you stepped into the cavern and all you see are just kind of dull, lifeless stones. This is not what you expected. I mean, why couldn't Matthew start his gospel like John does, with these great sweeping theological Statements, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or Luke, the great historian, who says, you know, something to the effect of, after looking at all the evidence, consulting the sources, eyewitnesses, this is the story of Christ. Or how about Mark? Mark, who's fast-paced, gets right to the action, immediately, immediately, immediately. No, Matthew decides to start with a list, a list of names. And so what do most of us do when we approach a list like this, the genealogy of Matthew? We skip it. We enter into the mine shaft and we go, okay, nothing to see here. And we walk right past it. But what we do when we skip a genealogy like this, especially Matthew's, is we miss the great treasure to find within it. It's a great treasure, this list of names. And and really, you'll, you'll begin to uncover it just if you do a little digging you got to dig a little bit. You have to cross-reference. You have to look back to the Old Testament to see 
who these people were and what this genealogy, who this genealogy is pointing to. And in fact, at the very beginning of Matthew, what we really see is a beautiful mosaic, a colorful picture. All these individual characters and these people make up this bigger picture and point to the king. The king is Jesus. And Matthew's genealogy emphasizes that, illustrates that, this greater picture. Jesus is the king. He is the culmination of God's promises in the Old Testament. His arrival is much anticipated as we look at Matthew's genealogy. And so my prayer for us is that we would behold Him. That we would not be bored with a list, become complacent or apathetic as we approach Matthew's Gospel. Oh, I know that story. Or I know Jesus. Or I remember those names. No, I pray that we would approach God's Word like the Greeks approached the disciple Philip and said, what? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And my job, as we go through this book, you know, I get 20, 25 hours a week of digging and digging and digging, and then on Sundays, I just come to show you what I found. And I, my aim is just to show you Christ and to do my best to package that 20 to 25 hours into 45 minutes, which is tough because there's so much here. But I wish to show you Jesus, and I wish that you would just marvel at His magnificence as we walk through this gospel. So why don't we pray to that end before we go any further? Father, the arrival of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in His first advent is remarkable. It is stunning. How You orchestrated all these people, these events, to culminate in this Glorious arrival, this baby who was born in Bethlehem, God. It is incredible to think about. I pray that we would behold Jesus, that we would anticipate Christmas as not just a remembrance of when Jesus first came, but a look forward to when He will come again to reign here on this earth as King. Lord, I pray that you would just light the flame in our hearts, that we'd be excited, thrilled to see Jesus, and that we would worship him. We would walk out of this auditorium today with just a a greater wonder and a greater love for the Lord Jesus the Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into this genealogy, a little bit of background on the book of Matthew. The author is Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. I know, surprising. Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple, and the apostle. Now, Matthew speaks about himself in the third person, and he actually never explicitly mentions his authorship, but early church history attributes this gospel to him. It's pretty universal that Matthew did, in fact, write this gospel. Now, Matthew's audience is pointedly Hebrew. He writes a gospel to the Jews to convince them that Jesus was in fact the Christ. You'll see this phrase repeated in his gospel, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophets. Now what Matthew is doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament, those prophecies that talk about Jesus, and showing the Jews, see, 
This is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Matthew also highlights Israel's rejection. In a way that no other gospel does, he emphatically points out that the Pharisees, the religious rulers in Israel, all missed it. They all missed it, and they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Now, just because it is pointedly Jewish doesn't mean we as Gentiles miss out on this gospel. That's not the case. Matthew, more than any gospel, highlights Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. He emphatically points out that the gospel of the kingdom has gone forth to all nations, and we're beneficiaries of that. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham that would bless the nations. Matthew makes that point clear. And so here's Matthew's message. Very simple. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He is the promised seed, the offspring of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant, The king has arrived, was what Matthew said. He has made manifest to us who he is. But he did not come first to reign. He came first to rescue. Matthew 1.21, to save his people from their sins. That was the king's mission in his first advent. But Jesus makes it clear, he will come again to reign, and he will come again to reign on this earth as he promised, in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus came first to rescue. He will come again to reign and to rule here. But Matthew makes it clear, Jesus is the king. He's the one that we've all been looking for, looking for. And the question for us is will we follow and serve Him as King? Will we follow and serve Him as His disciples did and the many thousands of Christians did afterwards? And so where did this King come from? That's where Matthew starts. The lineage, the King's lineage. So he starts with his genealogy. Look at the first verse. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, that word genealogy is the word genesis in the Greek. So it could read this way, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' beginnings. This is His origin story. Now, just a theological point. Where did the Old Testament start? With the genesis, the beginning, the origin story, right? Where all of us came from. God created the heavens and the earth and the people within it. And so where does the New Testament start? with another Genesis, a new beginning, an exciting new revelation from God. God would send His Son to us. Matthew structures his genealogy into three parts. Hopefully you caught that in the Scripture reading. In verse 17, there are three 14s. 14 generations from Abraham to David, one. Then 14 from David to the deportation to Babylon, two. And then 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the birth of Jesus. Now, these are three critical landmarks in Israel's history. 
two significant patriarchs in Abraham and David. Matthew, you'll see if you look at the genealogy in Luke, Matthew omits certain names. He, he leaves them out. And he does so purposefully to stick with this 14-14-14 structure. And I, I think and most commentators agree that it's for uh, mnemonic reasons, for people to be able to memorize right, the names and, and recount them in an easy way, 14-14-14. So that's how the genealogy is structured, but really, and, and you could dig so deep to go into each of these names and follow their history and where they fit on the king's line, but I think the summary is in verse 1. There are three titles of Christ in verse 1 that really, these are the hinge points, the significant names from which Jesus comes from. And so we're going to look at these three titles. The first is that Jesus is the Christ. The second, Jesus is the Son of David. And third, Jesus is the Son of Abraham. This is the king's lineage. He has the king's pedigree. Jesus comes through the promised and royal bloodline. And you have to understand that this may not be all exciting to us because there's a bunch of names in here that, we, again, we can't pronounce or we have difficult reading through. But you have to understand that this is not Matthew ramping up you know, to get to the action later in the gospel. Matthew starts with a startling, strong, definitive statement about the person of Jesus. What Matthew says in the first verse would shock the Jews. It would leave them taken aback. Wait, did he just say that Jesus is the Christ? Did Matthew just, was he so bold to claim that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham? That's how we got to understand this first verse in Matthew. Matthew starts strong and definitively. So let's go through these titles with the time that we have left here. Three titles. First is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. You see in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. Christ is not Jesus' last name. just want to make that clear. This was a title. This was a title of great significance. Christos, the Greek word that we translate in English, Christ, is actually a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Meshiach, which is Messiah. The translation for the verb, it's translated in the Old Testament, the verb, the noun, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Matthew is saying. Now, we got to understand that a special anointing was reserved for special people in Israel's economy or structure, social structure. Three offices that were anointed. You have the prophets who were anointed. 
You have the priests who are anointed, and then the kings who are anointed. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. King Saul, David, Solomon, and those after were all anointed as king. You have the Levitical priests anointed in Leviticus chapter 4 and so on. Elijah the prophet, he anoints his successor, Elisha. We see that in 1 Kings 19. So these men in the Old Testament were little Christs. They were little anointed ones. But Israel looked forward to someone else. Israel looked forward, and there were prophecies about the anointed one, the uppercase Christ. They anticipated this one. We see this word Meshiach used in Psalm 2, the anointed one who would break earthly rulers with a rod of iron. The one in Psalm 45 who will reign over his kingdom with righteousness and hate wickedness. The one in Psalm 89 who will make his enemies into a footstool. The one in Daniel 9 who would be cut off and humbled to nothing for the sake of his people. The one in Habakkuk 3.13 who would go out for the salvation of his people and crush the head of the enemy. The one, the anointed one in Isaiah 61, who would bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. The anointed one, who wouldn't just come and reign as king, but there were prophecies about this anointing one rescuing his people, even being humbled, cut off for the sake of his people. And so what Matthew says in the first verse of his gospel, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one. He is the fulfillment of these prophecies. They're fulfilled through him. So Matthew means to say that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another priest. He's not just another king. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. So 1 John 5.1 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The implication is that if you deny or reject the truth that Jesus is the Christ, you are not born of God. You are not a Christian. You're not saved. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, not just that Jesus is another historical figure, not just that Jesus was a good guy, a, an influential teacher, an impactful person in history, but do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one? Because there's a difference between the two. There's some debate around the great Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote in the first century, and he wrote about Jesus and his disciples. In fact, Josephus' writings are some of the most important extra-biblical sources that we have for the historicity of Jesus. Any historian worth their salt, whether they're an atheist or of other religions, they must deal with the writings of Josephus. That's how strong these writings are and how strong their 
point and emphasis is on the historicity of Jesus. But there's a great debate about whether Josephus was a true Christian. Because in one of his most important writings, the Testimonium Flavianum, in the Greek copies of his original manuscript, Josephus says, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But in the Arabic copies of the same text, Josephus writes, Jesus is called the Christ, and He might be the Messiah. Now, there is an eternal difference between both of those claims. If Josephus died believing Jesus is the Christ, then you will see Him in heaven. If Jesus died only suspicious that Jesus might be the Christ, then He is in hell. He is not born again. He's not saved. That's how significant this issue is for the people of Israel. That's how significant this issue is for you and I. To not just believe that Jesus was a good guy, a historical person, and not have this rational ascent. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus existed. But is Jesus the Christ? Do you believe that to be true? Matthew writes convincingly. He does not suspect He does not say Jesus might be the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, he says in the first verse of his gospel. So Jesus is the Christ, the second title. Jesus is the Son of David. You see that in the passage here. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And there's an important tracing that happens. We trace Jesus' lineage back to King David. And Matthew, the author, makes that emphasis in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And the names go on from there. David is a critical figure in Jesus' lineage. Now, this was not just a bragging point for Jesus. You know, like some of us, we might go to Ancestry.com and see that we had a king in our lineage. And we're bragging about it at parties and social gatherings. Well, you know I'm of the royal line of this Scottish king that I don't even know. can't even pronounce his name, right? For some reason, all of us are from Scotland. Well, all of us who are white. Um, of Scottish descent. But it's a, you know, it's a claim. It's a bragging point to say, oh, I'm of the royal line. I come from a long line of kings. But Jesus doesn't just use this as a bragging point. This is significance. This has greater significance than for Jesus just to say, oh, well, David was my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Matthew means to say something more significant. He actually traces back to the Davidic covenant with this title. So why don't you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is an important passage for you to know, a reference for you to know where the Davidic covenant is. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. This is a promise that God made to King David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die... 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, your predecessor, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What is God telling David? Well, David, you're going to have a son. And we know David's son was Solomon. And this son will build a house for me, and I will bless him. I'll keep my steadfast love with him, even though Solomon sins grievously before God. But God says something more to David. God says, hey, from your line, David, from Solomon's line, I'm going to continue this line forever with a descendant that will establish a forever kingdom. And the rest of the Old Testament echoes this promise, understanding that there is a king coming who would establish the Davidic covenant or and the Davidic kingdom, and uh, this king would be the Messiah. Psalm one thirty two eleven, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Isaiah nine six through seven, a popular Christmas verse: For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a promise. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Hosea 3, 5. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. The whole Old Testament leans forward in anticipation of this promised king. And so what Matthew says at the very beginning of his gospel in the first verse, is that Jesus is this king. He is the promised seed of David, the king that would fulfill the covenant, the promises God made to his people. The king has arrived. He showed up. His name is Jesus. But how was this king received? Was he received with resounding applause, excitement? Did the people of Israel all of a sudden bow their knees and worship Jesus as king? No. Jesus was largely rejected. Largely rejected by Israel, especially Israel. And we have to recall the promises made in Isaiah 53, talking about that same king. How would he be received? We were warned. Isaiah 53.3, Israel was warned. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom, from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
That's how the king was received in his first advent. Matthew writes of this tragedy, and he emphasizes it in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. The man was blind and mute, and now he saw and he spoke. And the people respond and they say, can this be the son of David? And the Pharisees say, no. He's a servant of Satan. He does these things by the power of Beelzebub. Wow. Strong statement. And then we see even a a greater climax, a greater tragedy when Pontius Pilate receives Christ. Jesus stands before him. Jesus has gone up the ladder now to the Roman praetorian. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds and says, what you have said is so. This is true. And so Pilate presents the crowds, a bruised, beaten, and innocent Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And he says, John 19 provides more commentary. He says, behold your king. Shall I crucify him? And what do they say? Crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. In the face of Jesus, they deny him as their king. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And you know, I'm reminded of the line in the hymn, ashamed I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner too. The king was rejected. He was despised and forsaken. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was pierced and he was crushed. Yet the irony of it all, the irony of it all is the beauty of it all is that by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His death on the cross was the perfect sacrifices sacrifice that we needed to atone for our sins. And so Peter says at Pentecost to the Jews, this Jesus whom you crucified yet was delivered according to the predetermined plan of God. This was according to His purpose. Why? So that He would die, He would be raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And, and Peter points out, hey, by the way, David, your beloved king, he's dead and buried. Jesus is alive and ascended to the right hand of God. Jesus is the king. The one you rejected is the king. Israel's king. Oh, just the beauty of it all. What other king, what other God would leave his throne, humble himself to be born a man, Suffer at the hands of men, be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for the sake of his people. No other king is the answer. No other God does something like this. Oh, what a beautiful Savior, beautiful, wonderful king we have. Jesus, he came first as servant king to forgive sinners by his sacrifice. He resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, conquering the power of sin and death. Yet he will come again to sit on the throne of David, to sit on his glorious throne, to make all his enemies into a footstool, fulfilling all the promises of the Davidic covenant. He will reign forever. Jesus is the king. Do you believe it? Do you live your life 
as if that reality is true. Is this your message? Is this your message at Christmas? The King has come. Jesus, the Savior, has arrived. This is a great gift from God. The greatest gift. Is this what fills your heart with praise and thanksgiving? Is this the reason for your season? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, this is the king that I preach in my gospel. The offspring of David. Jesus himself says in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I am the root and the descendant of David. This is clear. He says, I am coming back for my people. You know, you can say that Jesus is king. You could celebrate him as king with your mouth, but maybe you live differently with your life. Jesus is the king, but you live your life as if other idols, other people are more significant, have more influence over you. Repent of that and turn back and bend your knee to Jesus Christ, the true king, and worship him as king through your life and your mouth. So Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of David. And finally, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Again, this is not just another bragging point to point back to another famous guy in the Jewish lineage. This is, points us back further to yet another covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, another important reference for you to have. The Abrahamic covenant. So you have 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, and Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And you have to understand that the covenants really build, they're the backbone of the storyline of Scripture. This helps you to understand the overall story. Helps you to really put the pieces of the Old Testament together with the New Testament to understand how they all relate. So these are very, very important passages. Genesis 12 the Abrahamic covenant. This is another, again, a promise that God makes to Abraham. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis chapter 13, 15, 17, God continues to elaborate on these promises. Now, if you break the covenant into pieces and you understand the promises that are made, there's really three categories. There's individual promises made to Abraham. I will bless you, you Abraham, singular. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you. And God kept that promise. There are national promises to Abraham's direct descendants, his family line, the people of Israel. He says, I will make of you a great nation. They will be great in number more numerous than the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, and they will inherit the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. You have individual promises, national promises. 
But a lot of people miss the third category. You know, we are in the Abrahamic covenant too. The third promise or category of promises are the universal promises to the nations, to the Gentiles. He says very critically at the end of verse 3, in you, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's you and me. So there's a promise, a seed from Abraham that would go forth. It's like a a ray of light that shoots forward infinitely in time. And there was a person that's coming through which God would bless all the nations, people like you and I. Matthew, in the first sentence of his gospel, says that Jesus is this offspring. He is not only the Christ, not only the son of David, but he is the seed, the offspring of Abraham that all of us look forward to. The Savior, not only of Jews who would have faith in Him, but of the Gentiles, you and I, who would believe in Him and Him alone by faith for salvation. Jesus became a physical descendant of Abraham so that He could fulfill this promise. The promise is given in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you have to understand the Jews, the people of Israel, were very proud of their bloodline. Oh, they would look back at people like David, people like Judah, people like Abraham, Isaac, and boast. Look at who we came from. Look at our heritage. This was definitely a bragging point for most Jews, most in Israel. They received the sign of the covenant, the circumcision. So that became a distinguishing mark, a point of pride and arrogance. Oh, we are the circumcision. We receive the covenants of God. And you Gentiles, oh, you are dogs outside of the promises of God. And that's not how God intended it from the very beginning. God made promises to the Gentiles and fulfilled them through even the covenant to Abraham, their patriarch, their father. So when you read the genealogy of Matthew, this is so great. There are four names that stick out like a sore thumb. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and the wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba, verse 6. Four women, four Gentiles, four really disgraceful stories to include in this great royal lineage. So why does Matthew do this? Why does Matthew, the author, include these women? He's talking about the father of so-and-so, begot so-and-so, father, son, father, son, father, son. Why include these four Gentile women who have a very suspicious past? You understand Tamar was the wife of Judah's son. She disguised herself as a prostitute to have relations with her father-in-law. Thus, we have Perez. Rahab was the former prostitute of Jericho. She was received by Israel for her cooperation in hiding the spies. Rahab, or sorry, Ruth, was the humble Moabite foreigner whose husband died, and so she went with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Israel, was married to Boaz and continued the birth line. And then there's Bathsheba, who is not even named the woman with which David commit adultery the wife of Uriah. 
through which Solomon was born. So why would Matthew dirty the bloodline with the inclusion of such women? There are two reasons, two reasons that I see. Number one, Matthew makes the point that God is faithful despite men's unfaithfulness. Number two, the Gentiles, the nations, have been included all along in God's promises. First, God is faithful despite our unfaithfulness, as will be quick points. Matthew highlights the reality that Israel's beloved bloodline, even their beloved patriarch, Judah, and their beloved king, David, were stained with sin. Israel is not great. God is great. Psalm 106, and he keeps his promises. It says, many times he delivered them, but they, the people of Israel, were rebellious in their purposes, were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered what? His covenant, his promises. God was going to keep his promises. He was going to be faithful, even though men were not. He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. We, as well as Israel, can be tempted to think that we bring some value to the table for God. Look at my heritage, my tradition, my family line, the long list of great ancestors. And the reality is is that any list of ordinary men and women is stained with sin. Every one of our lists, stained with sin. All of us are stained with sin, but thanks be to God that He is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He keeps His promises, and He delivers to us a Savior even through this sin-stained bloodline. The pure and innocent Christ, who did not sin, could not sin, came from this bloodline. What a demonstration of God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness, even through the bloodstain of Uriah, even through the sexual immorality of Tamar and Rahab, even through the foreigner, the outsider in Ruth. God is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. And finally, the nations have been included all along. Israel was proud. They thought that salvation was exclusive to them as a people, exclusive to them as a nation. And God says, no, 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 that was not my point from the very beginning. And Matthew shows us that by including these four Gentile women in his genealogy. Look at God was saving Gentiles even in the Old Testament. And we saw a great display of that in Nineveh. And now the Christ has come, extending the gospel of his kingdom out to the Gentiles. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go to all the nations and make disciples. Jesus is that promised son of Abraham through which God would save the world, including the nations, Gentiles, not just Israel. And it's by faith in him. Galatians 3, 8 through 9. I'm not going to read through this whole passage, but I refer you to this to show how Jesus, the son of Abraham, fulfills this promise. Jesus came to this earth Not just as the son of Abraham, Savior of the Jews. He came to this earth as son of Abraham, the Savior of the nations. And we are the great beneficiaries of that, aren't we? A gathering of God's people of mixed backgrounds, mixed ethnicities, mixed nations and languages. What beauty. The beauty of the gospel that has gone out to us. 
men and women of different colors and backgrounds, making a people for himself, a people for his own possession. Glorious truths, and it's all through Christ, Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what Matthew's genealogy shows us. He connects the dots. You've seen those pegboards. You have the suspects on the pegboard, and then you have the pins with the line of string that all connect to this middle, this central figure. Well, if you connect the dots of the Old Testament, they all connect to the central figure, and the central figure is Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, the King, the Savior, the Messiah, the Savior of not only Israel, but of all people from all nations. Well, I'm running out of time, but and there's so much more to say about different characters in this list, but may we all trust in Christ, Jesus the Christ, as our only Savior and our only King, and live life differently in light of those truths. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, the Scriptures are so rich with treasure. Even in these 17 verses, this list of names, we find great treasures to behold, these promises of old that were fulfilled in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd be in awe and wonder as I previously prayed, just seeing how Christ connected those dots, how Jesus became a man and fulfilled those promises. For our sake, for our benefit, these aren't just historical facts, Lord, but they affect our lives. I pray that we would live differently in light of them. We'd see the glory of Jesus Christ. That we'd worship Him and follow Him with our lives. He is the Savior, the Messiah, the King that's worthy of all of our trust and our service. Lord, I pray that You would help us to follow Him and trust our lives with Him. Every step, every category, every day, every hour of our lives. May we surrender Christ and follow Him. In Jesus' name, amen.